Burroughs Furniture is built for the way you live. From ensuring easy assembly and disassembly to honoring highly requested new colors for their award-winning seating, they always have their customers in mind. Their modular seating is made out of durable materials to last and grow with you. And with Burrow, you always get fast, free shipping. Get up to 60% off during Burrow's Memorial Day sale at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's burrow.com slash ACAST. Burrow.com slash ACAST. You are listening to the Mother of All Talk Shows podcast with George Galloway. It started in very early 2006 on Talk Sport Radio, believe it or not. Eventually, in uh, I think uh, 2015, it moved to Talk Radio. It was in the interim on WBAI in the United States of America, imagine. But this is by far the best because we are broadcasting in sound and vision and to the entire world. A couple of corrections I want to make from last week. My old friend Christopher Sylvester, a colleague of mine at Private Eye back in the day and now a distinguished writer and biographer, he was uh, quick to point out a couple of mistakes that I made in my uh, oration, my monologue last week. The first one is that Richard Ingrams did not go to jail. Uh, that was the uh, founder and editor of Private Eye, and I said last week that he had been uh, forced to spend a night in the cells for refusing to name me before the court, the libel action brought by the late and far from great Robert Maxwell. In fact, the judge sentenced him uh, to spend a night in the cells, but Private Eye immediately sought an appeal, and that uphill appeal was upheld. And so the right of journalists not to name their sources in court was, at least for that time being, upheld. So neither uh, Mr. Uh, Sylvester, who was uh, also threatened with jail, uh, or Richard Ingrams were actually sent to jail. The second point is uh, that there was another early day motion on the order paper on the same day from a man whose life then became inextricably linked with mine. At the time of the motion on the order paper, I had never spoken to him ever. I had never met him and I had no knowledge at all that he too was making allegations against Robert Maxwell on the parliamentary order paper on the same day and, of course, covered by the same uh, parliamentary privilege. And that fellow was the then Member of Parliament, Rupert Allison, a distinguished Member of Parliament, particularly on defence, foreign affairs and intelligence matters, not least because in his spare time he was Nigel West, is... Nigel West, the famous spy writer, uh, one of Britain's longest serving and best spy writers. And after a mere decade or so of never having spoken to him, I'm hoping that we can connect to Rupert because I have quite forgotten, if I ever knew, exactly what he was accusing Robert Maxwell of. I remember, of course, vividly what I was, but I don't recall 
uh, what he was. And I don't know, I literally have never asked him until tonight, whether he got the same file of papers through his door on the Saturday night that I did in Battersea in London from, well, we must assume from Seymour Hirsch, whose book was being ruthlessly and totally suppressed by the Maxwell machine. And the only way to get the allegations out into the public domain was the age-old device of parliamentary privilege. So I'm hoping to establish a secure line. He's not in Moscow or anywhere exotic. He's at home. But I'm hoping to establish a clear Skype line to Rupert Allison. We'll be talking also about the extraordinary events in the United States where Bernie Sanders has burned his way into the lead in the opinion polls in the Democratic Party contest. And I said this week, and I'm the man that told you a year before he did that Donald Trump would become the, prime, the president of the United States. I'm the man who predicted to the exact percentage point the result of the Scottish independence referendum in 2014. I'm the man who predicted that Brexit would win when virtually nobody believed me. So when I predict something, sit up and pay attention. I'm predicting that Bernie Sanders will be the Democratic Party nominee against Donald Trump in 2020. And moreover, I'm predicting that if he is, he will defeat Donald Trump. And heaven knows we need it. What a week it's been for the chosen one. Upstairs from where I'm sitting, uh, Jose Mourinho used to claim he was the special one, but he did it with his tongue in his cheek. And he didn't pretend that he was Jesus come back to life. He didn't pretend he was literally the Messiah. But that's what Donald Trump was doing this week. Donald Trump said, uh, quoting approvingly from a right-wing shock jock, that people in Israel regard him as the king of Israel. He said, again quoting the shock jock, that people said he was the Messiah, that he was the chosen one. He doubled down on that thrice in the week. He called himself the chosen one three times, raising questions even more sharply than before that maybe he's gone absolutely nuts. His behavior at Beiritz at the G7, where he did everything but literally pat Boris Johnson on the head, where he led him around like a fifth form schoolboy, uh, introducing him to people, uh, total strangers, as the man who was going to be a great prime minister in Britain, never can there have been a more humiliating moment for a British prime minister, at least not since George W. Bush cried, yo, Blair, at another summit. And Blair came bounding like a grateful dog for his master's attention. We'll be talking about the G7. I asked Adam, who will be with us in the final hour, earlier this week, how come the G7 has neither China nor Russia in it, but Italy is in it? If it's supposed to be the seven big economies in the world, well, none of that computes because China is at least the second and arguably the biggest economy in the world. 
but it's not at the G7. Neither is Russia. It was kicked out for political reasons. Donald Trump, to his credit, is trying to get them back in. But I'll be asking Caleb Mopin later, what's the point of the G7? Provides a jamboree in Bear Ritz, which, if you've ever been in Bear Ritz, is definitely worth uh, visiting. And it provided the proximate cause for quite a rumbustious anti-oligarch demonstration. I've been on one or two of those. One I remember, in particular in Evian, was very tasty indeed. But I digress. The Epstein story, which involves Ghislaine Maxwell, the favorite child of Robert Maxwell, after whom the fateful yacht that Robert Maxwell fell off was pushed off or jumped off to his death in the Atlantic was called after the lady Ghislaine. Ghislaine Maxwell, his favorite child, precisely because she was the child most like her father. And lo and behold, when Rupert Allison and I thought it was safe to get back into the water, the Maxwell family are back. She still has not been tracked down. She still has not been produced by the American police. She still has not been questioned for the serious criminal offenses that her lover, accomplice, and partner, and friend, Jeffrey Epstein, stands accused of. It's almost as if they hope that the whole Epstein affair will be buried with the dirty billionaire. Well, some of us are determined that that should not be so, because we believe there's far, far more that we need to know, and that the lady Ghislaine Maxwell, who turns out to have been a frequent visitor to the Queen's second son. Yes, Prince Andrew was not just bosom buddies with Jeffrey Epstein, he was bosom buddies with Ghislaine Maxwell too. He even smuggled, and I mean smuggled, smuggled her into Buckingham Palace itself. Oh, the lesse majesty of it all. He also uh, had her and him, Epstein and Maxwell, at Sandringham. Epstein gave Fergie, his erstwhile wife, although they seem to be together rather a lot for a divorced couple, seem to be holidaying quite a lot together for a divorced couple. I wonder what's going on there. Well, she, for some reason, is permanently broke, and Epstein gave her... 15,000 pounds, just gave it to her as a gift. Why she, a duchess, uh, on all kinds of big earners over the years, needed 15,000 pounds from Epstein? Well, only uh, the future will tell. We're not being told much by the royal family, except we were told absurdly by the queen uh, that uh, Epstein was an acquaintance rather than a friend of Prince Andrew, but that turns out also to be a falsehood. Sorry, ma'am, but that was a falsehood that you were obliged to put into the public record, and it was wrong. Because, in fact, Prince Andrew was a close friend of Epstein even after his conviction for trafficking an underage girl 
and engaging with her in prostitution. Two years after that conviction, Prince Andrew was cavorting, well, cavorting in Central Park, in Washington Square, because there are pictures uh, to be found everywhere on the internet with Epstein. He is captured on video, waving goodbye to a very young girl inside Epstein's house where he stayed for approximately 10 days. He's in flight logs with Epstein and the underage girl who accuses him all over the world, including here in London where he's on photographic record with his arm rather salaciously round the bare midriff of a 17-year-old girl who had been transported over state lines for, she says, absolutely immoral purposes by Jeffrey Epstein, not the close, uh, not the acquaintance of Prince Andrew, but the close friend. So we'll be delving ever deeper into the waters, uh, deep, turbulent, and definitely murky that surround this whole affair. We'll be talking about Bernie Sanders with my old friend Carlin Nixon uh, from Sputnik News in the United States, who's a big supporter, as I am myself, full disclosure, of Bernie for president in 2020. We'll be talking to Caleb about the wildfires in Brazil. We'll be talking to him and others about the G7 also. But lastly, I want to deal with some attack that I've been under over uh, the last couple of days since uh, an interview I gave to Chinese state uh, media about Hong Kong uh, was released. I want to make something clear. First of all, I was not paid for the interview. I don't ask to be paid for interviews. So I gave it freely and of my own accord. And I did so because those are the views in which I believe. Moreover, nobody watching or listening to this is in any doubt as to what those views are, because I adumbrate them at every possible occasion, not on Chinese state media, but here, on Twitter, on Facebook, in Parliament, on the streets, for decades, absolutely consistently. I stand with China against the efforts of the international coalition ranged against it, which seeks to weaken it, to divide it, to check its progress, and if possible, to break it up. That's why I'm with China on everything from Tibet to Hong Kong. There's no mystery in it. It stems from my deeply held political philosophy, which I have held for 50 years, and the public record is littered with that whole spectrum of my views. I stand with Russia against those who wish Russia to be a broken-backed basket case like it was when they really loved it, when the president, Boris Yeltsin, was lying flat out on the floor drunk and the West was picking its pockets. I support Russia because I agree with most 
of its foreign policy stands, particularly the one which has stopped ISIS and Al-Qaeda from triumphing in Damascus. Imagine if it were not for Russia and Iran, with whom I also stand, then the black flag of ISIS would today be fluttering over the presidential quarters in Damascus. I support Russia because I want a multipolar world. I don't want to see a world where one country, oftentimes a giant ruled by a president with the mind of a child, can control and dictate what happens in the world. Some of these neocons, particularly today from Canada, sorry Canada, I love you, but you don't have, have a rogues galere of neocons in your midst. Actually, a lot of them are former Trotskyites. It's amazing how often that happens. Neocons that are erstwhile Trotskyites. Anyway, they've been attacking me today as a friend of what they call dictators. Funny they never call Donald Trump a dictator, George W. Bush a dictator, Barack Obama a dictator. Quite what they mean by dictator is, of course, quite flexible because the king of Saudi Arabia never gets called a dictator by the neocons because they've got their hands plunged deep into Saudi Arabia's pockets as the ownership of certain alt-media uh, houses would quickly reveal. But anyway, they say that I was with the dictators Saddam Hussein, Muammar Gaddafi and Bashar al-Assad. Well, I don't accept the nomenclature, but let me rewrite that for you. I stood with the people of Iraq, of Libya, of Syria, against their enemies. I stood with the people against the unhinged, berserk and disastrous Western imperialist assault on Iraq, on Libya, and on Syria. And I would be proud of the stand I have made with the Syrian Arab Republic, even if we've lost. But you know what? Sing hallelujah. We didn't lose. We prevailed. The Syrian Arab Republic stands. ISIS and Al-Qaeda are defeated. Thank God. Thank the Syrian Arab army. Thank Russia. Thank Iran. Thank Hezbollah. Because if ISIS and Al-Qaeda had taken Syria, well, you don't want to hear, trust me, what would have happened. First, to every Christian person in Syria, of whom there are very many. You don't want to know what would happen to Syrian women, to Syrian minorities of all kinds. You don't want to hear what would happen when the ISIS al-Qaeda state in Syria began to cascade across the world. So I wanted to set the record straight on that. Don't, you can, you can criticize any stand I take, any word I say, any word I write, but don't impute false motives to me. My views are consistent over decades. 
My views are consistent one with the other. And guess what? They'll never change. This is the mother of all talk shows. Now, my erstwhile parliamentary colleague and a distinguished colleague at that, Rupert Allison, who otherwise is known as Nigel West, the famous spy writer. I've read all your books, Rupert. Um, I do hope they're still selling well. Just when we thought it was safe to get in the water, the Maxwells are back. Isn't it extraordinary that she has been photographed in the company of none other than Donald Trump uh, and uh, others too, including Prince Andrew? Yeah, well, she was at the in the front row, front row pew at Chelsea Clinton's wedding. And, uh, of course, it now emerges that she was uh, smuggled in, the press said, to Buckingham Palace, the lessee majesty uh, of it all. And she has uh, visited Prince Andrew in many places, and he has visited her penthouse because we have a picture of him with his arm round the bare midriff of a 17-year-old girl in her penthouse. But uh, I just want, because we have never spoken about this, despite knowing each other now for more than 30 years, um, I tabled an early day motion that fateful day because a file of papers came through my door uh, I, and I presume that Seymour Hersh caused them to come through my door. Why did you do so on that day? And what did you say on the parliamentary order paper? Uh, well, I didn't say anything on the order paper. I uh, made a statement both in the Commons and outside the Commons uh, in relation to uh, allegations that had been made about Robert Maxwell, specifically as an arms dealer. And you'll recall that he had a news editor at the Sunday Miracle, Nick Davis, yes. who was rather an interesting character, who appeared, uh, based on documents, appeared to have been invoicing various parties uh, in connection with an arms deal. Now, he subsequently denied all knowledge of this and claimed that he'd never been involved in any arms dealing at all for Robert Maxwell or any else, and then promptly was done over by the Mail on Sunday, who, who obtained a photograph of him in North Carolina with the arms dealer in question, which appeared to authenticate the documents uh, that I had been passed. So well, that was that was my that was your part. With... Uh, that was your part in uh, in the downfall. I immediately sued. Uh, the Daily Mirror, because you'll recall the front page, I've got it framed on my wall, you and I looking exceedingly dashing, uh, and uh, the headline uh, on the front page of the Daily Mirror is Dishonourable Men and Dirty Tricks, and uh, some of the uh, ordure was uh, written by Joe Haynes, but other parts of it were written by a man who would later become even more famous. Alastair Campbell. You're absolutely right. And of course, although he prefers to forget about this particular episode in his life, he, he was the principal paid apologist for Robert Maxwell. He was the individual who assaulted another a journalist in the uh, lobby in Parliament who uh, made some objectionable remark about Robert Maxwell. 
and my role was just simply to repeat what I had said in the Commons, outside the Commons. I, I was sued then by Maxwell. I counterclaimed, won that case, as you know. And then I'm not sure whether you know that I was then the victim of an attack by um, Alistair Campbell, who tried to manipulate uh, an early day motion. And in those circumstances, I sued for something much more complicated than straightforward libel. It's the definition of malicious falsehood, where you have to demonstrate, it's very difficult to prove, but you've got to demonstrate that the perpetrator, i.e. Alistair Campbell, knew when he published the offensive material that he knew it to be untrue. And I got him, and I won that case. I, I, I was a witness uh, in that case uh, for you, uh, because uh, I, I, I was a witness to the events in, in question. Burrow is a furniture company known for timeless design and thoughtful construction, and free shipping, and that extends to their outdoor collection. Their outdoor furniture is built to withstand the elements, featuring rust-proof stainless steel hardware, weather-ready teak, and quick-dry foam cushions. For Memorial Day, get 15% off your Burrow purchase at burrow.com slash ACAST and up to 25% off outdoor. That's up to 25% off outdoor furniture at burrow.com slash ACAST. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Well, it was a very disagreeable episode with Alistair Campbell demonstrably trying to manipulate not just the newspapers and the media at that time, but Parliament. And we were able to catch him out because a greedy man, he went to press before the early day motion that he had engineered had actually been circulated. Extraordinary. Now, I've never asked you this either. What's your take on uh, what happened to Maxwell just a few weeks after all these events? Did he jump? Was he pushed? Or was it an accident in your view? Well, Mrs Thatcher believed that he'd been bumped off by the Israelis. Can you imagine? Uh, I came to the view that he had decided to end his own life. I think that he was a bully and a coward at heart. I think that he climbed off the side of the Lady Gilaine. And I think that he hung on. And that was the reason why the tendons some of the muscle fibre in his arms were found to be torn. And I think he hung on to the side of the vessel, which was just cruising off the Canaries. And then I think he let go and he drowned. And my opinion is that the last few telephone calls that he had received indicated that his empire was on the point of collapse and that nobody was going to help him out. And I think that he he decided that the easiest thing was to take his own life. That, that's my conclusion. Well, in my motion in Parliament, I, I accused uh, Maxwell of being an asset of the Israelis. Uh, 
a notion which might have seemed fanciful to some until he was buried with full state panoply and honours uh, on the Mount of Olives by the President and the Prime Minister of Israel who spoke of his extraordinary service for Israel. And the funeral was attended by no fewer than seven uh, serving and former heads of Israeli intelligence. So Mrs. Thatcher might not have been entirely off-beam. Yes, well, I can only be driven by the evidence as I see it. Yeah. And uh, as, as far as I am aware, there was no evidence of any other individual approaching the Lady Jelaine that night of getting on board. Now, of course, you might argue that a trained assassins are skilled and they're not going to leave any traces. Um, but I, my instinct is that these kinds of undertakings are governed by one principle, which is known by the term KISS, which means keep it simple, stupid. And the idea of getting a team onto a yacht that is moving, that has radar, uh, that is fully staffed, uh, and then bumping off somebody and then being able to leave the vessel undetected seems to me to be a pretty tall order. Mm. Mind you, as uh, Jonathan Aitken, another of our former colleagues, uh, once said, Mrs. Thatcher uh, thought the, uh, that Sinai was the plural of sinus. So she didn't know everything about the Middle East. <laughs> now, uh, let's go back to, uh, to Epstein. Uh, as a thriller writer, a spy writer of great uh, renown, uh, you must see this unfolding as a, a potential terrific, uh, a terrific book, Rupert. No, I, I don't. And the reason why is that I, I see this as a sort of ghastly, unfolding tragedy. There are people uh, in all walks of life who have uh, very disagreeable proclivities. And it, it's, it's obvious that, that Epstein is just such an individual. And I can also imagine the circumstances in which uh, Prince Andrew might have been told, don't abandon him, uh, that the issue has been dealt with. Uh, what he was charged with was uh, a minor offence uh, of uh, soliciting uh, a prostitute. And you, and you can see the circumstances in which boys will be boys, saying, who hasn't done that? Um, just for the record, I never have. Neither but have it, I, just see, for the record. <laughs> <laughs> but you, you can see the circumstances in which to uh, abandon somebody uh, in those circumstances um, could also leave you to some criticism. And mm. if his instincts, and clearly they were wrong in this case, if his instincts were to stand by uh, his friend, and I have no understanding of the nature of the relationship between the two of them. But I can, I can see the circumstances in which he would go and stay with those people. And nothing has been proved in relation to Prince Andrew. He was unwise in that association. I entirely accept that. And apparently he accepts that. Yeah, I mean, I'm thinking Prince Andrew is a fairly minor player uh, in this. I, I was really rather thinking of uh, some of the big political figures that were 
you're more or less uh, joined at the hip with Epstein, uh, Bill Clinton, uh, for example. Uh, Ehud Barak, the former Prime Minister of Israel, the, these were powerful political uh, people who had very close relations with a man uh, who we now know, and it's stretching it a bit that none of them had any suspicion that he was perpetually in motion, ha seeking and having sex with very young girls. Now, if he lured any of these powerful friends into uh, uh, some parties, some activities that he then recorded, he'd be in a very strong position as, a, as an intelligence asset, wouldn't he? Well, I think he'd be in a very dangerous position. I mean, from an intelligence point of view, you really want people who are willing sources. The moment that you try and coerce and blackmail people, put them under pressure to supply you with information, they'll betray you at the first opportunity. Mm. And there's no shortage of sources. Usually there are small queues of people who are willing to supply information uh, in the right circumstances if they had promised uh, a home in Florida for the rest of their life with a swimming pool and the pension of a lieutenant colonel, uh, or if they're promised a, a new passport or resettlement in Canada, whatever it takes, uh, those willing sources are far better than the victim of blackmail. Interesting. So I, I don't buy. I don't buy that uh, Jeffrey Epstein either was a victim of or a willing participant of, of an intelligence agency. Until I see the evidence, mm. there may be evidence out there, and I and I suspect that all the people around him probably were duped. My impression is that these kinds of ruthless sociopaths are very convincing. And, and uh, probably fool their own family as much as they do their closest friends and are born manipulators. That's, that goes with the DNA of these individuals. Now, uh, finally, what are you working on these days? Have you got a book out? Are you writing one? You're all, you've always got a book out and you're writing one. <laughs> do you know, I've spent the last eight years working on a, a, a set of diaries that were written during and after the Second World War by the former director, deputy director general of MI5, a man called Guy Liddell. Oh, yes. And I, I wrote the wartime, I edited his wartime diaries, 1939 to 1945, and I, that was a hell of a chunk out of my life. And it was quite uh, an undertaking. And it was only when I finished that MI5 then told me, by the way, he carried on writing his diaries from 1945 to 1953. Wow. So uh, I have finally finished the three volumes of Guy Little's Cold War diaries and annotated them, explaining who the people are, filling in the material that has been redacted by MI5. And that's out now in Amazon in three volumes. Who's the and publisher? It, uh, the publisher is Amazon. Amazon, so you can be, in three you can be parts. Through, through Amazon .co.uk, Amazon.com. And these are in three volumes, but they give you an extraordinary insight into the, the first eight years of the Cold War. I'll have mine purchased by the time I get home. Thank you very much indeed, the Honourable Rupert Allison, former Member of Parliament, and as Nigel West, a prominent okay. spy writer. Thank you very much indeed, Rupert.
Time for a break, I think. Now, it's a night for remaking old acquaintances. I've just remade one with Rupert Allison. I'm about to uh, remake another with Scott Ritter, who is a former United States Army officer, is a former United Nations weapons inspector, who served in Iraq as a weapons inspector, nothing that he doesn't know about weapons, and a man who told the truth in the run-up to the invasion and occupation of Iraq, and who was not listened to. And if he had been listened to, we wouldn't be in the state we're in. His name, of course, is Scott Ritter, and he'll be up shortly. But I want to talk to him about the INF Treaty. It has come to my knowledge that not that many people know what that means. The INF, not to be confused with IMF, the INF is the Intermediate Nuclear Forces Treaty, signed by President Reagan and uh, President Gorbachev of the then Soviet Union, which took away from the continent of Europe the danger of short and medium-range nuclear weapons, which, of course, are of deadly importance to everyone in Europe. If you are allowed to cite nuclear weapons with a range of up to 1,500 miles on land in European countries, then, of course, Russia will have to do the same. And the tripwire, or the threshold, if you like, of exchanging short-range uh, nuclear weapons is much lower. Why? Because neither Washington nor Moscow, for that matter, has to worry in the first instance about the weapons landing on them. In other words, the United States can fight a proxy war using the civilian populations of European capitals as its collateral damage. It can fire short-range nuclear missiles, hoping to knock Russia out of any potential confrontation. Now, Donald Trump believes in acting unilaterally. No one could take that away from him. He unilaterally ripped up the nuclear deal with Iran. He unilaterally ripped up the Paris Agreement on climate change. And now he's unilaterally ripped up the INF Treaty. Moreover, in the couple of weeks only, since ripping up the treaty, he has test-fired precisely one of those short-range nuclear weapons which, for continental USA, can only be used elsewhere. It's obvious. You can't fire a short-range nuclear missile from the United States anywhere. Even if you stood on the coast, you wouldn't reach anywhere. Therefore, use in Europe, and therefore are of grave, clear, and present danger for us. Let me read you one or two of the notes. As I said, it was signed by the US and the USSR in 87. It banned all nuclear and non-nuclear missiles with short and medium range, except sea-launched weapons. The US has been concerned, they say, by the Soviet deployment. Who writes this stuff? Who writes this stuff? 
The Soviet Union ceased to exist in 1989. I'm not even going to bother reading that. It's an, it's an insult to everyone's intelligence. Scott Ritter, though, is a man that I salute, and I take my hat off to you. Scott Ritter, wonderful to see you again. You haven't aged a day. <laughs> well, thank you very much. I, I'm, I'm trying. Hey, it's a struggle. <laughs> you're still fit. Now, I've been telling people about the import of the uh, tearing up of the INF. Uh, Trump made allegations about Russian missile development, but most people, including you, because I've read your stuff, think that this was a mere uh, pretext. Uh, if, if the allegation about Russian development of weapons, which he said was in breach of the INF, were true, they could have come to the negotiating table and proved it. They could have sent inspectors like you uh, to go and look at this missile that the Russians had developed and adjudicate on whether or not it had breached the terms of the INF, but they didn't do any of that. Uh, this is another example, isn't it, of UN, U.S. unilateralism in the military field. Well, absolutely. But let's be clear, this, this actually started under the Obama administration. If you recall, the Obama administration, um, you know, President Obama came in with great hopes of, um, of advancing, you know, a, a, an arms control uh, friendly administration. But he ran head on into the uh, U.S. You know, military industrial complex uh, and the reality that America is addicted to, to nuclear weapons. Um, he also tried to do the uh, the famous reset uh, with uh, relations, but they weren't serious about that. They put Ambassador Michael McFaul uh, in place. He he uh, together with Hillary Clinton interfered in Russian elections because the United States wanted uh, you know Prime Minister Medvedev to be the leader. They didn't like you know pre uh, President Putin. So in, in 2014, a series of tests took place in a in a Russian. Uh, you know, facility called Kapustin Yar, um, and basically, a, a, an intelligence analyst uh, saw some conflicting information and um, hypothesized that Russia could be testing a prohibited missile. The U.S. ran with this, accusing Russia of a violation, but this was purely a political ploy. And keep in mind, the Obama administration wasn't about getting out of the INF treaty; they were about harassing Russia. It was it was a Trump administration. Go ahead. Well, we've lost your sound, unfortunately. Oh, no. <laughs> Go ahead. So the, the, the Obama uh, agenda was harassing Russia not to get out of INF. Go on. Right. But then, you know, Trump comes in and he has John Bolton, who is the, you know, he's the Antichrist when it comes to For arms sure, control. Yeah, he's the man yeah. who got George Do W. Bush Dr. to Strange pull out of the ABM treaty. Yeah. And he's the one who pushed... Uh, Trump to get out of the INF treaty. And you're absolutely right. Look, the Russians made every effort to prove that the system the United States says is in violation was, in fact, a, a, a permitted system, up to and including offering the missile itself up to inspection. The United States refused because this was not about proving Russia guilty. This was about getting out of the INF treaty at any excuse, not because of any threat that Russia posed, but John Bolton and, and the Trump administration has bought into this notion that because China wasn't part of the INF treaty, 
uh, the treaty is no longer viable. So they're going to destroy the treaty in an effort to negotiate a new treaty that would be inclusive of China and Russia. Neither China nor Russia is going to go along with this. And the people they're going to suffer is Europe. You know, yeah. I was one of the original INF inspectors back in 1988. The fact is, I was the first INF inspector on Soviet soil to implement that treaty. And I'm very proud of the role that we played in removing the threat of immediate nuclear annihilation from the people of Europe. And for, for four decades now, the people of Europe have been able to go to sleep at night, not fearing that nine minutes away from nuclear annihilation should a mistake be made. That's over now. Every European city is now targeted by a Russian nuclear missile, not because Putin threatens Europe or is trying to bully Europe, but because Putin is responding to the unilateral irresponsible actions of the United States government, and Europe is paying the price. Now, this is uh, further proved by the rapidity with which the U.S. then test-fired uh, a, a prohibited missile, uh, which they couldn't possibly have constructed. Uh, it's uh, the missile, its delivery system got ready for the test. They must have had this uh, formerly banned test ready long before they pulled out of the treaty. Well, the Russians, the Russians have been saying this from, from, from the very beginning. The system we're talking about is the Mark 41. Um, it's, a, it's, a, it's a missile launch system, a vertical launch system that's normally on ships and therefore not covered by the INF treaty. But the system we're talking about is called Aegis Ashore because the, the, the name of this Mark 41 is the Aegis Anti-Air System or Vertical Launch System. We've put two of these systems into Europe, one in Poland, one in Romania. And the Russians said all along, this is a violation. You've now taken a system capable of launching a cruise missile, put it on the ground, that becomes an INF system. You're in violation. And the United States said, oh, no, no, uh, we're not. There's a software modification. You have to trust us. The only thing that's in there right now is anti-ballistic um, you know, missile systems. Uh, but the lie comes when less than 16 days after pulling out of the treaty, we bolt a Mark 41 onto the back of a flatbed truck and launch a ground launch cruise missile to prohibited range. This is not a test that happens in 16 days. This is a capability the United States has always had on the books, and the Russians recognized that and called the United States out on that. One of the reasons why the United States didn't want to inspect the Russian missile was they not only were they afraid of what they were going to find, but there would have had to have been a reciprocal inspection of the Mark 41 system by Russians who knew what they were going to find, that the Americans and NATO were in violation of the INF Treaty. And remember, it's not just Bolton, Trump, who accused the Russians of this. John Stoltenberg and NATO have come out aggressively against Russia when the fact is it is NATO that operated in violation of the INF Treaty. It's a, again, it's a sad state of affairs. The well, people of Europe yeah. need to wake up. I don't, know, I don't know if SAD quite uh, covers it. Uh, now, uh, sadly, Scott, I'm old enough to have lived before the 40 years that you refer to. I was demonstrating uh, on the streets uh, of Europe against the deployment of cruise missiles, as were the women at Greenham Common, for example. It was a huge issue in British politics in the early 1980s. And yet we seem to have sleepwalked into a situation where they may not be deployed here in Britain, although I see no reason why not, given the close relationship and so on. 
but they're already deployed in former socialist bloc countries like Poland and Romania. So we are actually now back. We've turned the clock back to the dark, dark night of the pre-INF uh, years. The biggest fear that came out of INF was the fact that one mistake, um, you know, could normally, let's say you have a mistake with uh, strategic missiles. You've got a 30 to 40 minute window to figure out you made a mistake before a counter launch is ordered. And thank goodness we had that because there were several instances during the Cold War where the Russians thought we were launching on them. And thank goodness some of their missile launch control officers said, hey, time out, let's take a pause for the cause. Let's find out what's going on. And they found out it was a mistake. Uh, had they gone with protocol, they would have launched and we, would, we wouldn't be here today. Um, but what we've done with INF, if we remove that 30 to 40 minutes and it's replaced now with less than nine minutes. So now if a mistake occurs in Poland or Romania, uh, the Russians are nine minutes away from having Moscow hit and taken out. So the Russians have a nine minute window to decide, is this a mistake or do we react? And we know what the answer is going to be. Nine minutes isn't very long. They're gonna react. There is no leeway for common sense to prevail. That's the danger here. Two, uh, you know, with Brexit uh, in, 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 the, in, in the hard e exit that's gonna take place, Britain is going to become very beholden to the United States. And while there are a lot of British people that say, uh, you're not gonna deploy an INF system on our soil, uh, that political calculus is out the window. Britain's gonna owe America for how we're gonna have to step in and salvage your economy once you pull out of the EU. And uh, one of the prices that is gonna be expected is that you are going to put INF systems on your soil. So guess who becomes target number one in any future conflict with Russia? The British people better wake up and understand that this isn't just politics as usual. This isn't an academic exercise. This is reality. This is your future. This is the future of mankind because there will be no limited nuclear war in Europe. Once nuclear missiles fly, the whole world is gone. That's humanity. That's everybody. It's on your shoulders. It's on our shoulders. Uh, you know, the American people, the British people, we've got to do something because this is serious business. I, 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 like you said, I think people have forgotten you know, how real the Cold War was, how real the, the threat of nuclear annihilation was. They somehow sleepwalk past that thinking this is just a, a, a made-for-TV movie. No, this is real life. Well, it's hard to uh, think of a more important issue than the one we've been discussing. I wish I had time to argue with you uh, about Brexit, but I don't because it's <laughs> the hour. Scott Ritter, it's a pleasure to see you again in such fine fettle and as eloquent as ever. Thank you very much indeed for joining us. We'll be talking uh, in a minute to Caleb Morpan, who's my favorite U.S. journalist. He's uh, with uh, RT America and also, I think, also with, uh, with uh, Sputnik Radio, Sputnik News. And I'm hoping he's coming up on Skype very quickly. We're going to talk to him about the G7 and, of course, about the uh, other issues that are uh, enveloping the globe. The INF we just touched on with Scott Ritter there, a man who knows what he's talking about. Uh, the fires in the Amazon, uh, it's almost biblical. And our next guest, well, quite a biblical name, Caleb. Thanks very much for joining us. Sure, glad to be here as always. It's uh, been too long, my friend. Uh, I watch you every day on RT America, and so should others. Uh, I want to start off, though, with the G7 summit. Now, 
you'll have to forgive me, but not many people in Britain regard that summit as being of much import. After all, neither Russia nor China are at it. And uh, President Trump seems to be roaming around like a bull in a china shop, uh, alternately patronizing, bullying, and browbeating uh, the other supplicants, sorry, I mean the other participants. How does it look from your side of the pond? Well, he set the stage for the G7 summit with the tweet that we, the Americans, uh, saw on Friday morning, in which he said, quote, our great American companies are hereby ordered to immediately start looking for an alternative to China. Now, the thing is, when Donald Trump sent this tweet out and basically is you know, declaring on Twitter that American companies are ordered to stop doing business with China, it's almost like he forgot that we don't have the Chinese economic and political system in the United States. In the USA, we have a free market system where the, uh, the president doesn't have the ability to hereby order with a tweet uh, who American companies can and cannot do business with. We don't have a command economy. Um, and so there was quite a strange reaction to that tweet, uh, almost mockery it seemed, uh, to Donald Trump uh, making these bold claims. However, to a lot of Trump's base, that tweet looked pretty good. It looked like he was saying, look, I'm standing up for average working men in the United States, working men and women. I'm saying that you can't ship jobs overseas. So it was a bit of political theater. But it's a little strange to have the president on social media saying, I hereby order things when he has no constitutional authority to he, hereby order them. But, but he is the king of Israel and the chosen one, so maybe it's gone to his head. A little bit. Um, you know, you have wonder, is this all performance art or is he he's starting to approach a level of delusion? Um, now, in the set up to the G7, we also heard him lashing out at the French president, Macron. Um, and he was mad about the digital tax. He was threatening possibly a tariff on French wine. Um, but we know what the real disagreement between Trump and Macron really is. And that's the Iran deal, right, that that France very much favored the Iran nu nuclear conclusion, the P5 plus one talks, the JCPOA, whereas President Trump is absolutely opposed to it, has ripped it up. That's the real disagreement between Trump and Macron. It's not really an issue of digital taxes and wine tariffs and all of that. A lot of theater there that we heard. Now, uh, he led, and I think I can say led, I mean, he may, he, may, he may have actually, but he certainly metaphorically led the British Prime Minister around by his necktie, uh, almost like an exhibit, like a performing bear. I don't know if you've caught any of these pictures, but nothing could be more humiliating. There's not been anything so humiliating since George W. Bush cried, Yo, Blair! And Blair came bounding up to him uh, around the time of the Iraq war. Um, are a lot of people mentioning that or noticing that, this new uh, strange affair in the special relationship? Well, Trump refers to Boris Johnson as Britain's Trump, and he very much likes to to tote him around like a trophy. It's proof uh, that his presidency has been good because now someone who he considers to be very similar to himself uh, is now leading the United Kingdom. And uh, I, I think that he, he very much considers uh, Boris Johnson's ascendancy to be a confirmation that somehow his presidency in the United States was correct, so correct that the, the British people have now prop, uh, 
copied it with their new prime minister. Um, and I think that's how Trump sees it, or at least how he's trying to present it to his supporters and to a domestic audience in the United States. Now, Boris Johnson and Trump are very different people. Um, I mean, despite whatever similarities exist, there certainly are plenty. They, they have very different political backgrounds. Uh, you know, well, Johnson, yeah, politics. Johnson can speak Latin and Trump can hardly speak English. <laughs> That's one way of putting it. The other thing, though, um, is that, you know, Trump has announced opening up trade with Japan um, at the G7, and he's been really playing that up. Um, but it seems like Japan has now just recently followed the lead of Trump, and they've started a trade war of their own, not with China, but with South Korea. They have put sanctions on South Korea, and in response, South Korea is responding. And now we see a mini-trade war uh, in the Pacific between Japan and South Korea. So it's almost as if uh, the Japanese leadership has, has followed the example of Trump and decided to have a trade war of their own. So people are paying close attention to that situation. But all these trade wars, and I don't know how you keep track of all the countries you've sanctioned or you're in uh, trade wars at various stages uh, with, uh, but there's no doubt that they're, they're uh, driving the world to uh, a new recession and maybe a very big one. Well, indeed, Trump has attached himself to Peter Navarro uh, from the White House Trade Council. Peter Navarro and this other guy, Tim Leithheiser, and these guys are anti-China agitators. They're not really taken seriously among mainstream U.S. economists. They have made their whole career going around telling everyone that the cause of all economic woes is China. And they put on, you know, fancy performances, lots of, you know, flashing lights and bells and whistles. And they're, you know, they're, they're good, uh, good performers, good pitchmen, good salesmen. Uh, but they're not really taken seriously. And we've seen, you know, many, many voices, the Wall Street Journals and others warn that, that we could be seeing a Peter Navarro recession, that this guy is not a well-respected economist. And he seems to have the ear of the president. And his obsession for decades has just been opposing China, economically fighting against China, doing everything he can to combat China. And Trump seems to be very closely listening to this fellow. And people are wondering, is Trump going to crash our economy uh, because he's got, a, uh, he's got a magical wizard or a Rasputin or an economic uh, flim-flam man whispering in his ears? It's a very difficult, dangerous time for a president to be risking their economy uh, with the presidential election for a second term coming up. I mean, I was listening the other day to uh, tales of horror from Midwest farmers uh, who are hurting very badly uh, from, the, from the sanctions and counter sanctions now from China. I see that a steel plant uh, in Michigan just uh, laid off 200 workers, so much for putting America back to work again. Uh, it's risky for Trump, this, isn't it? It certainly is. You know, the farmers are almost kind of sacred in Americana, right? We have the writings of Thomas Jefferson, who hailed the yeoman as the great example of the ideal American citizen, this small farmer with his own land. You know, we've got, you know, the left, the right, you know, the farmer is just kind of sacred. And Obama really, really, you know, you know, did a, a, a bad thing to the farmers in the United States when he put sanctions on Russia, right? And, th and that farmers in the United States couldn't export their goods to Russia. And that was supposed to hurt Russia so badly. But now they're having a farming boom in Russia, right? Agricultural boom. Uh, the Russian government has been sponsoring the, the creation. And now all over Russia, they're having the biggest harvest that they've had uh, in, in decades. Um, 
And on top of that, so now China, another market where American agribusiness mainly, uh, not the small romantic farmer that you hear about, but big agribusiness corporations have exported to, now China is not buying American soybeans, it's not buying American beef, it's not buying American agricultural products, and it, it's going to be pretty miserable. Now, and you got to keep in mind that a lot of these red states uh, that, that voted so strongly for Trump are the farm belt of the United States, you know, Iowa, Kansas, Nebraska. So, so this could potentially hurt Trump. Now, that's not to say that people in those states, just because they may not like the, the results of the trade war and the, the impact on agriculture, that doesn't necessarily guarantee they're going to vote for the Democrat, right? These are very solid conservative folks, uh, you know, so, so we can't be really sure this is going to hurt Trump in the final election. But it's not good for a big, a big sector in the U.S. economy, that's for sure. Now let's switch uh, gears uh, and tell me about the Amazon, the fires in the Amazon, almost biblical scenes, uh, the, uh, the earth's lungs on fire. Uh, it has uh, swept the world as, a, as an issue of alarm, and that is uh, being presided over by Trump's uh, bosom, another of his bosom buddies. Uh, Bolsonaro, the president of Brazil. Sure. And, I mean, Bolsonaro has come to the United States. He's been, you know, rolled, had the red carpet rolled out for him. The two of them, you know, very much like each other. Uh, but yet, at, at the same time, uh, in the United States, even among the mainstream, there's a feeling that Bolsonaro is not a good guy. We see his ties to paramilitary right-wing organizations in Brazil. Furthermore, the only reason Bolsonaro was elected is because Lula da Silva, the socialist, was locked in jail to keep him from running in the election. Lula da Silva was the favored candidate, according to every poll. And now we have the tweets and, and evidence revealed that, that during the trial, in which resulted in, in Lula da Silva being locked up, that, that the judge and the prosecutor were uh, in communication, texting each other about how to make sure that Lula da Silva went to jail. So many people around the world are viewing Bolsonaro's presidency as illegitimate. And now that the Amazon is on fire uh, and people are looking into illegal logging and people skating the environmental regulations in Brazil and that having a big, uh, a big impact on what's happening, fires often happen during this season, but nothing like what we're seeing now. These fires could be seen from space, according to some reports. Um, not, I mean, people are wondering how much longer Bolsonaro really has, right? He came in promising he was going to fix everything up. It was going to be, you know, a free market deregulation. It was, you know, the problem was socialism. The problem is, is, is social programs, and he was going to have a free market miracle. Well, we're not seeing a free market miracle. We are seeing a huge fire uh, in the Amazon rainforest. So uh, that, that, that raises a lot of questions, I think, uh, in the minds of many people. Um, but Trump seems to like Bolsonaro a lot. I have seen that the government of Evo Morales in Bolivia, the Marxist government there, has stepped up their support, and they are sending helicopters and other forces to try and put out the fire. And nobody talks about the fact that Evo Morales' government in Bolivia had the highest rate of GDP growth of all of South America in 2018, the highest rate of GDP growth. We hear all about Venezuela. We're constantly told in the United States, well, Venezuela is having problems. Then that proves that socialism doesn't work. Well, there's a huge amount of growth taking place in Bolivia right now. They are bringing roads to very remote parts of the country. They have wiped out illiteracy. They're having the highest GDP growth rate in all of South America. That's a success story for socialism, but we don't hear about that in American media. Now, you mentioned uh, Venezuela. I'd almost forgotten it because it was 
top of the news agenda just, well, a couple of months ago, maybe less. Have the U.S. given up uh, trying to overthrow the government in Venezuela, or have they moved on to Iran? Have they moved on elsewhere? Well, it seems like they have, they've changed their tactics. Uh, they've basically given Venezuela the Cuba treatment. Uh, they've basically imposed a full-on embargo. And now, that's obviously an act of economic warfare um, that, that's going to have very big problems it's going to create for the Venezuelan people. But at the same time, it also is a bit of a, a perhaps a confession of defeat, because if they thought they were on the verge of actually toppling the Venezuelan elected government and removing Maduro and the United Socialist Party, they would want to be more integrated into the country. They'd want to have you know, their forces and their businesses and their, their diplomats and others there. So giving Venezuela the full-on Cuban embargo, you know, putting them in the same category as like the Islamic Republic of Iran is... Uh, in a way, you can see that as the USA admitting they don't see regime change happening anytime soon, that the United Socialist Party is going to remain in power, and they're just going to now do everything they can to make life difficult for them. Fantastic uh, tour of the horizon. Thank you very much, Caleb. Caleb Mopen of RT America, thanks for joining us on the mother of all talk shows. Garland Nixon will be up shortly. He's another of my colleagues from RT in America, from Sputnik in America, talking specifically about Bernie Sanders. But I, I reckon I better take a break. I don't know how it came to me, but it was on the back of uh, the best yet public opinion poll ratings for Bernie Sanders, moving ahead of the pack. The other also runs languishing down at ones and twos and threes. And Joe Biden's series of uh, blunders, you'll recall, I don't know if I mentioned that last week, but he, uh, he publicly said in a, in a speech uh, that uh, he remembers well when uh, Martin Luther King and uh, Bobby Kennedy were shot dead in the late 70s. He was pretty sure of that because he and his wife were getting engaged around the same time, uh, which made me wonder if we're going to swap one uh, uh, person of doubtful intellectual grasp for another if the United States goes for Joe Biden. Uh, but more than that, there was a steady stream of pro-worker policies aimed at the working class in America. Not fancy dancing on identity, political issues. Economistic, aimed at the working class, aimed at the only color that mattered for the purposes of the message. Blue, blue collar, industrial workers, what he was going to do for union rights, what he was going to do for re-industrialization. The kind of things I scream that the Labour Party here in Britain should be endlessly proselytizing over rather than some of the things they choose to do. I'd like to hear from Garland whether he too is more optimistic this weekend than he perhaps was last weekend about Bernie's chances. Good evening to you, Garland. Thank you for joining us. Good evening, George. Thank you for having me on. Where do you stand now on uh, Bernie? Do you think do you think it's true that he's beginning to move into the lead? Yeah, and I, and I really believe that the, you know, that the, the, the ducks are starting to fall in a row, 
for Bernie Sanders. Uh, I felt for from the very beginning, I didn't I've never felt that Joe Biden is going to finish the nomination process as the nominee. And with what we've been seeing of him recently, there certainly seems to be some cognitive issues um, that aren't improving, to be kind. Um, and I think that eventually it's going to get to there. It, we're going to get to a point where um, people are going to realize that he's not a viable option. At that point, I think Bernie Sanders is the person who um, he's in second place. Um, his uh, his numbers are strong. His his uh, his machine on the ground is strong, and so I'm feeling really good about Bernie. Particularly as, as as you just mentioned, the fact that he is coming out with substantive policies. You know, the mainstream people are about rhetoric. They're about identity politics, but they haven't been putting forth policies, substantive policies that are attractive to the working class. So I'm feeling better and better about Bernie from what's happening outside of his control, I think, is, is aligning well for him. But the things that he's doing, I think he's doing the right things to play the long game and to attract the working class. Yeah, I agree. I see it exactly uh, like that. Now, uh, one of the uh, sticks with which uh, the Clintonite remaining Clintonite forces in the party and others uh, like to use to hit Bernie is all this Bernie's bros that he speaks to men better than he speaks to women, that he speaks to white people uh, better than he speaks to people of color. Uh, I don't buy any of that, but what kind of traction does it have? I don't think it has a lot of traction. It's the hand that they've been playing. And if you look at the, the resistance people, the Clinton people, the neoliberals, whatever term you want to describe them with, that's a pretty common tactic that they use because they don't have the policies to, work, to, to attract the working class. So they have to look for another way to do them. It's, it's a move out of desperation. So everyone, you know, you're an anti-Semite or you're a racist or you're a misogynist. Those things exist. But when it comes down to, um, I, I believe when it comes down to the issue of politics, at some point, people start looking at their wallets and they start, uh, you know, considering, uh, you know, how these policies are going to affect them. Now, if you look at black America and you look at the policies, one interesting thing right now, for all the discussion about Bernie Sanders and race, at race, he has, he's at about 18% of the black vote. But Elizabeth Warren, a person whom the machine absolutely loves, is only at about 8%. So Bernie Sanders policies in, in America, if you understand the intractable link, excuse me, you know, a link between um, uh, uh, race and class in America, you'll see that most black people fit, fall in the working class, the working poor, or the poor, the majority of the people. So these are policies that will attract them. And again, I think it's the long game. It's saying people, everyone in America is listening to the same radio station, WIIFM, what's in it for me? Bernie Sanders is telling people what's in it for them. And I think in the long run, in the short run, it may not seem to be moving the needle, but in the long run, I think that's the only thing that works. They're not seriously describing a Jewish man uh, with a Jewish wife uh, as an anti-Semite, are they? Not really. That's the only reason. <laughs> if it weren't for that, I'm sure that would happen, <laughs> particularly in that he has questioned some of the traditional neocon premises on the Israeli-Palestinian issue. So that would be coming, and I think it's probably frustrating to the neocons that they can't go after him for that. But Bernie's just ducking that, and he keeps going back to his strength, and that's what I like. You know, if you have a particular strength, if there's something that you do good, you stick with that. Bernie's sticking with his strength. I think in the long term that works. One of the things I'm seeing in the polls also, 
is, even in, in the in the in the in the um, in the, the, the African American, the black vote, above 50, 50 and up, Biden has a big lead. But 50 and below, that lead dramatically shrinks. But again, you're talking about people who have school uh, loans that they need to pay off, people who can look at Bernie Sanders' policies and say, that works for me, and who have not been really, you know, kind of nailed into the system of the traditional Democrats versus the traditional Republicans. That's the only way you can win. The last thing I'll say is this. If you look at the mainstream media now, if I say an MSNBC or CNN, the people who watch that, who watch that, if you look at their numbers and their demographics, they're very old. So the younger people aren't hearing the constant rhetoric about Bernie Sanders that would, you know, that would drive them away from him that some of the older viewers of the mainstream media are getting. And so they're able to make a, a more independent decision. And I think that's what pushes them in that direction of, of, of supporting Bernie Sanders. Now, in some countries in the world, not China, uh, but in, in, in America on other, uh, other times, uh, Bernie would be seen to be quite an old guy to be uh, running for a first term uh, as president. But actually, his main rival is, uh, is older. I mean, Biden is showing the signs of his age, isn't he? Yeah, oh, yeah, there's some very significant issues with Biden. Uh, some people are starting to put together some, you know, conglomeration videos, um, where, you know, collaborative, uh, collective videos where, I mean, he stumbles his words. He does a lot of things that make it appear as though, and let's be honest, you know, I'm older, my back ain't what it used to be. As you get older, you have certain things, but some people are better and some people are worse. Joe Biden, it's getting very, very clear that Joe Biden is not going to be able to stand up um, you know, to a Donald Trump in, the, in, in, in a general election. I think at this point, I think Trump would crush him because, I mean, yeah. in a debate, Trump would crush him because he's not mentally sharp enough to stand up to that kind of battle. So I think it's going to get more and more obvious. And as that gets obvious, the options become, if you look at the polls, the options become Elizabeth Warren and Bernie Sanders. And Elizabeth Warren is just kind of, you know, hanging on to Bernie Sanders' coattails, politically speaking. And, you know, as we often see on the other side with conservatives, if a person has a choice between a conservative and a halfway conservative, they're going to take the conservative. And if they're, they have a choice between Bernie Sanders and a halfway Bernie Sanders, I believe they're going to take the real one. Now, uh, I don't want to frighten the horses or uh, uh, put you off your night's sleep, uh, Garland, when it comes. Uh, but is there anything in the possibility I saw floated this week that Hillary Clinton will make a late entry into the race, especially if Biden falters? It wouldn't. Now, to be honest, I mean, that's kind of scary, but it wouldn't surprise me because I do believe Biden is going to falter. And of course, the establishment will be quite desperate. But the other side of it is I think that would wipe out the Democratic Party in the near term. I don't think about the short. I don't know about the short term. But in the near term, if that happened, it would be so disruptive to the party that it would basically be throwing up a white flag and saying Donald Trump gets four more years. So the party's desperate. Whether or not they'll go that far, I don't know. But I do know this. But, you know, they're working even as we speak to try to, um, you know, take Bernie out to try to rig it again. Um, they may very well be successful and we could be looking at, you know, the equivalent of, you know, the Whigs in the 1840s. Um, so it remains to be seen. But oh, that's a scary thought of Hillary coming in. Yeah, it scared me. Uh, I don't have any horses, but if I had, they definitely would have been scared uh, at that prospect. But you raise something uh very important there, Garland. Um, if the 
Democratic Party's machine crushes again the democracy of the primary system, if it cheats Bernie Sanders out of the nomination, might he run as a, as a third force? Ought he to run as a third force? My opinion is, of course, since I'm a big Bernie Sanders, yes, I think he should run as a third force. You know, the funny thing, you know, as a third party, the funny thing about it is that the party will argue, well, Bernie Sanders hasn't been a lifelong Democrat. He shouldn't even be a Democrat. And when some of the Sanders supporters say, OK, well, then maybe he should run third party, they'll say, no, because then he'll split the vote and uh, and then Trump will win. Um, I don't think Bernie will. I, I, I think Bernie really does believe that Trump is so bad that he's got to do whatever he can to get him out. Um, but I, I think if you look at it right now, you know, we're debating this as though it's a possibility that they'll try to cheat. Right now, they changed the rules in a number, we could get into it, but in a number of ways already to rig it. I would argue they're in the process of rigging it right now. And the only way Bernie Sanders wins is if he beats them so bad that they can't steal it. Other than that, right now, if you really want to look at what's happening with them moving the superdelegates to the second, superdelegates to the second vote at the convention and then flooding the field with candidates to ensure that nobody wins on the first vote, vote They've already rigged it, but Bernie's going to have to over. I, I think Bernie's going to have to outperform the polls by 10 points everywhere in order just to get by the amount of rigging that they've done right now. And when's the first uh, actual vote cast? I'm not, you know, I wish I knew that. That's pretty, pretty embarrassing that I don't know that as much. No, study but as it's, I it's, it's in, the, it's either, in uh, the winter, winter time, no? First of the year, it starts. Oh, it's in the, it's in the new year. Yeah. Well, Garland, you're going to have to come back uh, uh, and uh, talk to us about that again. Uh, and thank you very much. Give my regards uh, to your co-host, Lee Stranahan, also, would you please? I certainly will. Thank you for having me on. I love your show. I watch it all the time, and I certainly appreciate you having me on here. Be, be happy to no, come on anytime. It here. was an honor for us, Garland. Thanks very much indeed for joining us. Let's take a break. I still don't understand what is causing problems in Kashmir. If Adam does not think it is left-wing or right-wing politics, how would he describe the source of the problems? Religious differences don't explain it either. Is it just another power struggle? Over to you. Ask Adam. Well, it, it began in earnest in the middle of October 1947, around which time the partition of what was soon to be the former British Raj, British India, was taking place. Now, the way that the subcontinent was partitioned was indeed on a religious basis where Muslim-majority regions, according to the two-nation theory, were to become part of the new Pakistan, where Hindu-majority regions would form a new Indian state. State. Now, Kashmir, or Jammu and Kashmir, to give it its full name, was one of these princely states which, although part of the British Raj, was nominally ruled by a local prince. Uh, and so the Maharaja, who ruled over, who he was Hindu, but he ruled over a majority Muslim population, he in publicly, in, in, in public, dithered. In private, he ended up signing the very controversial instrument of ascension, which 
took Jammu and Kashmir and made it part of India in spite of the fact that the majority of the people clearly... Great majority, huge majority. Indeed, it did not want to be. Now, why I say mid-October is important, the instrument was only ascended in, on the 27th of October, but in mid-October, members of the terrorist group RSS, a Hindu fanatical group modelled after the Hitler youth, of all things... Who murdered Mahatma Gandhi. In very much so. Uh, they began massacring Muslims in Jammu. And indeed, they changed the demographics of Jammu in favor of a slight Hindu majority, where before there was a Muslim majority in Jammu. Even in Jammu. Even in Jammu, just as there was and remains a vast, vast, vast Muslim majority in the valley of Kashmir. So what happened was a war broke out. The various uh, Patan Pashtun tribesmen came into the Jammu to fight the RSS and the fighting spread and you had the first war between India and Pakistan even though and this is crucial it began before there was an India it began before there was a Pakistan only by a few weeks but it was in those few weeks where the die were cast and the great struggle for Kashmiri freedom began because Kashmir was essentially taken prisoner by an India that wanted to rule them because of the the important rivers that run through Kashmir and therefore the important resource of water but the people themselves didn't want to be Indian they never felt Indian and they still don't if you have difficulty ruling a place that's a legally defined disputed territory which according to the UN it still very much is there's a reason for it the people there don't feel Indian they feel Kashmiri many if not most of them feel an affinity with Pakistan the UN demands a plebiscite and that plebiscite which has been which was proposed at the end of the 1940s by a fledgling UN still has not been delivered now what the Indian government has done and taken an occupied land and converted it into a totally annexed land is really pushing things to the boiling point thank you very much Christina I hope that's uh, clear Robert is on the line on a wholly different subject go ahead Robert Hi, how are you guys? Um, Doing well. I, uh, I had a question regarding uh, pan-Arabism. Oh yes, go ahead. And, you, uh, and your opinion on it. Can you, can you hear? Yeah, of course, very clearly. Well, I'm, I'm, okay, perfect. I, so, I'm strongly in favor of it. Uh, from, uh, from Marrakesh to Bahrain, uh, with all that soil, all that water, all that oil, all that gas, 350 million people one language, one God. Uh, what's not to love? If the Arabs had any sense, that's what they'd be heading for. And the greatest of all Arabs, Gamal Abdel Nasser, showed them the way. Yeah, yeah. Well, yes, I completely agree with you, but um, I've lived in the Middle East and I have many very close Arab friends as well as colleagues. And my general experience with pan-Arabism in practical terms is that it's, it's almost a dream and no one is working towards it. It's almost been forgotten. Was it still worth pursuing, or should it just be relegated? Well, I, I, I honestly think, Robert, that it's the only solution. And whether people think it's a dream or not, let me tell you, I may have told you before, I sat and had dinner with a man in his 90s, uh, uh, a man uh, who at that point lived in something called Jordan. And we uh, were having lunch high on a mountaintop in which you could see not just Jordan, but Palestine, Lebanon and Syria from that mountaintop 
And I asked this 93, 94-year-old man, uh, when you were a young man, none of these countries existed. Uh, so what did you call yourself back then? He was temporarily uh, perplexed by the question, uh, but eventually he said, we were Arabs from Bilad sham from the land of Sham, greater yeah. Yeah. Syria. Now, it may be a dream, but I was sitting with a man, he's dead now unfortunately, but I was sitting with him not that long ago, uh, who remembered when it was uh, one union, one common conception uh, of Arabism. Adam. Well, I agree with everything you've just said. And we have to remember the Arab world has been united for far longer than it's been divided, yeah. whether under Arab caliphates or in an intact form under the control of the Ottoman Empire, who more or less let the Arabs do whatever they wanted in many ways. And some might disagree, but just as the Romans thought of the Greeks as the cultural foundation of a mighty military empire, the Ottomans, because they took the religion of the Prophet Muhammad, peace be upon him, who was an Arab, uh, they look to the Arabic world in the same way that the Romans look to the Hellenic world, the Greek world. And so it was only in the 20th century when you had a previously indivisible space divided. And when you think about it, with all the oil, all the ports, all the minerals, all the vegetation, all of the history that the Arab world has, this expansive piece of geography, if it were to unite, it would be a superpower. superpower. And yet you, you talk to Arabs, whether in, in real life or on social media, they say, no, because Maghrebis and Levantines and Gulfies have a different word for this chicken or lamb dish. We can't unite and be a superpower. Madness. Just, look, I'll tell you what, Robert, just say to your friends, do you think that the Western countries that dominate you would like you to be united or not? And if you ask that question, you know the answer. <laughs> and if the Western countries don't want the Arabs to be united, that's a pretty good reason to be united, isn't it? Well, you know, George, I'll have to say that I've uh, yelled that to many of my friends' faces, and it doesn't seem to be getting through. But I do have one more question um, regarding your experience. Were you in Jarash? I've been in Jarash, yes. Very beautiful. Yeah, yeah I, I, I had quite a similar experience. I don't know if it was on the same mountaintop, and I doubt it was with the same person, but it's a beautiful place. Indeed, truly beautiful. That's one of the problems uh, about the Arab world. It is very beautiful. Uh, its culture it is. is beautiful. Its spirituality is beautiful. It is uh, vast in its expanse. Uh, one could spend one's entire life traveling from one end of it to the other and enjoying the mosaic uh, that the Arab countries represent. I uh, fell in love with it in 1977, and notwithstanding uh, a few putative divorces, I'm still in love with it today. Robert, thanks for the call. Michael is in Washington. What would you like to say, Michael? Yeah, I'd like to get a conversation started about uh, the climate change with regarding to the burning of the forests. A lot of people say, well, it's there to clear the air or filter the air and stuff. And they talk about the rising seas because, oh, it's going to spoil our real estate and our big mansions by the oceans and the beaches. But what they don't talk about is the uh, oxygen 
oxygen in the air. I mean, you have to have a 15% oxygen for us humans to breathe with good lungs. But when it falls below 13%, my understanding is that we suffocate and die. And you'll see these people with the tubes in their nose because they need oxygen because you have a liter requirement per, um, I don't know what the formula is, mm. but if you have bad lungs, you have to get more oxygen. If you're up in the mountains where the air is thin, you breathe faster because you need more oxygen. But no. when you burn the forest yeah. well, and you remove the yeah. oxygen makers, we're in trouble. No, uh, what do you think? Yeah, well, of course, uh, it's alarming to everyone uh, when places go on fire and when forests go on fire. It has an even greater import for the whole world, not just for those immediately affected. There are always fires at this time of the year. There are also fires going on elsewhere. But this Amazon fire appears to be particularly apocalyptic, would you say, Adam? Absolutely. I was actually thinking about this today and thinking about why the Green Movement, like so many political movements before it, is shooting not only itself in the foot, but is shooting its cause in the foot. When people talk about environmental protection, they ought to think locally first. In fact, some of the early environmentalists of the mid-20th century even had that phrase, uh, think, uh, think globally but act locally. It's very important for people to stop polluting their local environments. And one of the ways to fix that, pick up rubbish, mm. plant trees, water trees. But when they start talking in this grandiose apocalyptic language and combine it with the ethos of Trotskyism, it's so off-putting to so many because instead of being pro-environment, it strikes many moderate people like myself as being anti-technology, anti-employment, anti anti-industry, anti-progress, and anti-human freedom. So why not actually focus on the positive things that people can do locally? And I'm, I'm speaking as someone whose own grandfather used to drive his old car around random streets in his area and just pick up rubbish and tie it up and, and dispose of it in, in the proper way. But these people, they think that they're going to save the world by blocking the streets and keeping people from going to their jobs and then taxing us to the hilt as if we're not taxed enough. They've really, really not just gone astray. I think they've gone off the edge. So you, you, you would say that, that uh, people uh, talk globally but don't act locally. Exactly. That's and, the, and that's uh, the big problem for me. What do you think of that, sir? Well, I think it's uh, absolutely correct um, because everything filters down to what's affecting you locally. That's for sure. But more, more than the Amazon just burning in the fires, you've got them clearing forests for palm oil. That's a big yes. deal. And for cattle, you know, they need, they want to raise cattle, so get rid of all the trees. Yeah, I'm telling you. What was the you, point that was uh, being made about veganism uh, earlier, wasn't it? That uh, it's the need for space and feed for cattle, uh, for beef, uh, that is causing some of the deforestation. Uh, palm oil is another major culprit. There's actually, I don't know if there's a need for beef. I personally have one. Uh, I'm not sure if I ever have had a need for palm oil, but its environmental consequences are very grave. There's no doubt uh, about that. Plastic uh, that uh, David Attenborough has been highlighting. I, I abhor plastic and have since its invention, in fact. 
uh, and uh, I'd be, uh, in fact, my children have a standing injunction uh, that there is to be no plastic junk, as I put it, uh, right. in their Christmas uh, stockings or their birthday uh, presents and so on. Uh, so again, it's uh, Adam saying you've got to act locally uh, before you can really hope to act globally. You can talk globally, easy, but talking is cheap, isn't it? Well, Sir David knows what he's talking about, that's for sure. Yeah. And I really would like to reemphasize the percent of oxygen in our air needs to be mentioned or we're missing something. Yeah, wonderful. You've got a great radio voice, by the way. <laughs> uh, you're not a radio presenter, are you? No, I'm not. You no. should be. You missed your calling. Thanks very much. A lovely call. Ali is in the Netherlands. Let's hear from him. Go ahead, Ali. Aha, we've lost uh, Ali. This, uh, the, the Green Party is a perfect example of that, and not just in Britain. I have heard the Green Party speak of nothing else for the last three years other than stopping the democratic decision to <laughs> Brexit from the European Union. I'd forgotten they had uh, an environmental uh, narrative and agenda at all. Uh, same is true of green parties in, uh, in different uh, countries. Ali's back on the line. Let's hear from him. Ali in the Netherlands, welcome. Peace be upon you. And on you, sir. Go ahead. Honorable gentlemen, I was uh, wondering, your prediction for the, 20, or the next elections in the U U.S., uh, if you'd ask me, Bernie Sanders won the 2016 election. Sadly, we just did not get to witness it as, the, as a world. But nevertheless, I was wondering about what you would think the uh, peace process in Israel or in Palestine, what kind of consequences it would have if we would switch uh, presidents uh, mid or next coming elections in the U.S., do you think that would benefit the peace or do you think that it would um, cut it off? Well, I can because answer. At this I, point, I, I, I what can, I know is yeah. that the society, the Israeli society, is quite divided. There's elections coming up there as well, and I think those are a little bit more important at this point in time than the elections in the U.S. Well, they're, they're, they're divided between the uh, far right and the really, really, really <laughs> far right. There is nobody with any prospect of winning the elections in Israel who has the slightest, remotest interest in what you, Ali, if you'll forgive me, laughingly call the peace process. There is no peace process. And it's vitally important that people understand that because it's this chimera of a peace process, uh, uh, which is a never-ending process for decades, and now there isn't even a process. It was never-ending process and no peace. Now there's no process and, of course, by definition, no uh, peace. But the first part of your question is more interesting to me. Uh, uh, Adam and I have uh, different opinions on, on some things, and this is uh, one of them. Uh, I believe if the Democrats choose Bernie Sanders, he will win. Uh, but if they don't choose Bernie Sanders, they will lose, and Trump will serve uh, a second 
presidential term. Adam, I think your view is that Trump's going to win whoever's up against him. That's right. And as I was listening to the first part of the show, I thought that maybe we should make this interesting. Uh, I propose that if Donald Trump beats Bernie Sanders in the election, I'll have to go on air on this show wearing a hat supporting uh, uh, a Celtic, I'll say, no, Celtic rather, FC, uh, your football club. If, however, Donald Trump beats Bernie Sanders, and I, I, almost, I almost feel dirty just saying this because the hat is part of you, but you would have to wear some piece of headgear promoting whichever progressive rock band you like least. And I know that there's quite a few to choose from. That is imaginative, I must say. Um, and you're That's, sticking to that. You're I'm sticking to that. You're certain Trump's going to win whoever's up against him. A wager my hat on it, yes. Well, there you go, Ali. Uh, not uh, the answer perhaps you were looking for. I, I believe that Bernie Sanders is the only person, and I believe it last time too, well, the, I agree. the only I agree. person who could have beaten Trump and remains so. I agree with you that... If Bernie Sanders gets the nomination and the DNC does its job, which it's not doing at this point in time, he will win. But he will not be opposed by Bernie Sanders. This is the whole point. And we're all laughing about it, but this is the reality we're living in. Well, as, Garland, I, uh, as Garland Nixon pointed out earlier, they had their tactic, the, the party machine's tactic this time was twofold to allow the so-called superdelegates a vote in the second ballot and then to ensure that a second ballot was uh, in almost all circumstances inescapable by flooding the field with no hope candidates who are polling one, two and three percent whose names we can't pronounce or remember, whose names are not even household names in their own towns in America if you variegate the primary voting across tens of heads, you guarantee a second ballot at the convention. And then the superdelegates, the machine men and women, uh, move into place. Ali, wonderful to hear from you again. Let's Thank take you a, very much. You're welcome. Let's take a quick break. Adam should eat George's hat if Bernie wins. <laughs> and Stevie G. Wiz says, ban politicians for wasting oxygen and producing hot air. Very good one. Uh, Tehane Wilson-Cooper says, the Arab Union is far less destructive than the British was, is, and most likely will remain as such. And Free, Tho Free Thought says, you shouldn't simplistically generalize about the culture of the Middle East region. Thus speaks someone who doesn't want them to unite. What do you mean simplistically generalize? I've been with the Arabs for 45 years. I've spent more time in any Arab country than almost anyone else in this country, never mind in all of them. There's only one of them. In fact, I haven't yet been in. And Gregory Wonderwheel says, this is the one point I disagree with George on. Pan-Arabism is racist, <laughs> just as much as if we argued for pan-Englishism. I don't really... Well, Nadine's on line one to talk about this very subject. We're under fire, Adam. Nadine, go ahead. Um, hello, George, and hello, Adam. I'm a big fan of both of you. Thank um, you. Where are you calling from? 
I'm coming from Montreal, Canada. Okay, fantastic. Great to hear from you. Go on. Thank you. Uh, I, I, I only wanted to comment on, on uh, why I think um, pan-Arabism Arabism feels like a dream to most Arabs. I don't think it's because uh, most of us uh, don't think um, that the majority wants it or um, uh, that, that we're not working for it. It's, it's more a matter of um, uh, the challenge of, of defeating uh, Islamism, which we believe, I think, most Arabs as an Arab, and that's the opinion that I hear from most Arabs are from me, is that we, we see Islamism as a tool that was um, uh, intentionally funded and, and promoted to destroy pan-Arabism and, and replace it and drive the you know, uh, divisions across the Arab world, um, across um, Syrian lines. Well, that's absolutely and, um, true. Uh, pan-Arabism is the precise opposite of Islamism. It is positing Arabism as the overarching identity uh, for the people from Marrakesh to Bahrain and it is the only identity that can do so. Not every person in the Arab world is a Muslim, the majority are Muslim, but there are many Arab Christians, there are many Arab Druze, there are Arab secular people, there are Arab Jews, uh, there are there are all kinds of Arabs, but if you build states or build parties, build movements on that kind of identity, you're guaranteed disunity. Whereas pan-Arabism is something that everyone can get behind, isn't it, Adam? Well, I agree with everything you've said. And you have to look at what conflicts are being caused and from what sources. If they're saying this is a Syria only for those who believe in greater Syria as a concept, it negates Arabs who don't buy into that nostalgia for something which never even really existed. If you say we are for the Sunni Muslims, look at what it does to the many tens of hundreds of millions of Shia. Or if we're just all for Muslims full stop, which no one ever says that, there's always a sectarian caveat even within Islam then it's obviously a grave danger to the Christians whose population in Iraq and in Syria has been wiped out by the great purveyors of democracy that Blair and Cameron and wearing Obama their and, uh, Christianity on their sleeve <laughs> yes uh, quite yes the, the hypocrites there so as you say the only commonality is Arabism and there's a wonderful clip I believe it's from your Kalmaya horror show yeah. where you're speaking about this about in how, Lebanon in yes. Lebanon a single language, a single God, because obviously Christians and Muslims, same God, the one true yeah. God, as you instructed yeah. me uh, in our theological school that we had on there a few weeks ago. But all of these things, when you look at China, multiple languages, a vast expanse. When you look at Russia, which is really, they call India a subcontinent. What does that make Russia? It's really a continent in and of itself. And you think of the expanse. When you look at this failed European Union, at least Europeans aren't killing each other. Uh, they're doing a lot of other rubbish things because of this wretched EU. But look at all the different languages, and they pretend that's a union. The Arabs had a union. They had unity both under caliphates and under uh, Arab caliphates, the, I should say, the, and under uh, the under Turkish the caliphate, Ottomans. the Ottomans. And they all speak the same, same language. Same language, yes. Nadine, final word to you. Um, actually, I was wondering what, uh, what your thoughts would be about uh, the, the solution, because the way we see it is that apparently the political parties that uh, espouse uh, pan-Arabist ideas are always outfunded um, by either a 
the Islamist parties, which obviously uh, receives uh, funding from business uh, states, uh, so different nations. Well, things, uh, look, Nadine, things wax and wane. Uh, you sound young, and therefore it's important to make this point to you. I was alive when pan-Arabism was the dominant political trend. And although I'm getting on, I'm not that old. But I was alive when pan-Arabism, when Nasserism, uh, when the Ba'ath Party uh, were powerful, growing, vibrant, uh, organizations. I always preferred uh, Nasserism myself. Now, uh, what uh, goes up uh, can come down, uh, but of course what comes down can also go back up. Now, uh, Islamism as a political creed has utterly failed. It has completely, comprehensively failed. It has morphed into the most horrific phenomenon that we have, I think, ever seen uh, in modern times, at least, in human history. Uh, when people gloss over it now, but when, if you laid all the crimes of Al-Qaeda and ISIS and the uh, alphabet soup of Islamist fanatism in uh, Syria, if you, in Iraq also, if you laid them end to end, you would, you would circumnavigate the world, you know the number of throats they cut, people they murdered, religious places they destroyed, the sectarian hatred they engendered. Look at these pictures now, which no one, no one, no one in the West is looking at, because no one is showing them of the Christian people in Syria celebrating the defeat of ISIS and Al-Qaeda and the other uh, rats that had occupied them for years in Syria. People are ringing church bells. They are singing hosannas. The people liberated by the Syrian Arab army are celebrating joyously, absolute rhapsody. It, it, it's something to make a stone cry, but nobody in the West sees it because none of these pictures have been shown, Nadine. And, and and may I please also add that uh, I think um, the other challenge that we also have is that we have these political parties that are completely uh, servants to the West, and they get obviously support from the outside. So the challenge really remains uh, that we need to find a way to support um, and fund um, pan-Arabist uh, political parties. Well, you're but right. Uh, you're right. But they'll have to form them first. They'll have to make unity with each other if they want to unite the Arabs. Syria and Iraq remain two separate countries at daggers drawn, even though the Ba'ath Party ruled both of them, and for decades. So they have to unite themselves first before they're going to have any chance of uniting the Arab people. Thanks very much indeed, Nadine, uh, for that call in Montreal. Wow. Who's on the line? Ramsey in London. Go ahead, Ramsey. Yes, um, I'm a big fan of yours. And, um... Thank you. And uh, last time I spoke to you was in 2003 on Steps of Soat. On where? But anyway. Okay, go ahead. On the Steps of Soat. Okay, okay, 2003. I remember yes. I, I, I did uh, at least 20 meetings in Soas in 2003, at least. Yeah. Yeah, go ahead. Anyway, I'll, I wanted to talk about, um, I can hear myself, by the way. But, That's okay. Uh, okay. You're, you're very clear. Go on. Yeah. Um, so I want to talk about um, uh, pan-Arabism and um, clientelism. 
the problem in the Middle East is that there is clientelism, unlike in, uh, in uh, the, the metropoles in, in, in uh, London and like in, in the West. Do, explain, uh, do uh, explain, explain what you mean by that, will you? Okay, so there are um, um, hierarchies um, that uh, when one person employs the other person, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and that, that creates um, vested interests. And the, the, these vested interests are, um, because of those, during the era of, era of colonialism, um, uh, there were state apparatus that were created in order to extract wealth from from the Middle East. Yeah. And um, so well, look, you're onto something. Uh, you're you're onto something space. there. What What's happened, Ramsey, is that the old style of colonialism, where you actually physically occupy. Uh, I'm I'm watching a series now called The Last Post. It's set in uh, Aden. Uh, and it is literally in the 60s. The Beatles are top of the charts, and the British Army is still occupying Aden. Uh, it was the last post. Now, all that has gone, uh, although the British are back in Bahrain uh, and in Oman. But uh, it's largely gone. But what happens now is uh, Western countries support the tyrants uh, that rule the Arab countries on the promise that those tyrants will use the petrodollars they generate for the, de- for the betterment of the Western uh, countries that prop them up rather than their own countries, don't you think? There's a missing bourgeoisie in the Middle East and uh, uh, in the wider there is. so-called third world. There's a missing bourgeoisie. Yeah. So that, what that means is that the lumpen pro- proletariat in um, in, in the Middle East and other places in the world cannot um, um, demand a change from the state class. There's something called the state class. Um, there's a writer called um, uh, Milo Van Dilas who wrote about them. And um, that's, that's really the problem uh, in the Middle East. There's, there's no bourgeoisie, uh, there's no public sphere. Absolutely, uh, because of the abnormal development which happened in the Middle East, largely because of the creation of Israel. All normal politics were, for crucial decades, suspended. They never occurred because fake rulers mobilized their whole people uh, behind the notion of removing the Zionist state and liberating Palestine, don't you think? Well, uh, if you want to go, let's go to Egypt, for example. Um, in Egypt, there was, um, um, the, the, because beforehand, there was no um, ownership of land as in, in the same way that there is in Europe. Mm. And because of the demands of colonialism, there mm. were, uh, the, the administrators took over the land in Egypt, and uh, that provided um, lots and lots of cotton to the, um, to the um, uh, mills in, in Lancashire. Mm-hmm. Okay, look, uh, it, the, it was a bad line, but a good call. Uh, don't be a stranger. Come back again. I've got another call on the line on the same subject. Who knew? <laughs> who knew that pan-Arabism it's would be the topic uh, of uh, of the night? It's Nestor on the line. Nestor. Uh, yes. Uh, th- uh, thank you for uh, having my call. Uh, where, where are you calling from? 
I'm calling from Maryland, USA. Okay, welcome, sir. Go ahead. I guess, uh, um, I'm, well, I'm, uh, for starters, I'm uh, Latino and raised Catholic. Uh, my grandma's uh, evangelical. And you know how you were mentioning that in the West, there's no unifying uh, uh uh, idea or, or, or anything that, that unifies anything. Uh, but my point is that, you know, U.S. Uh, promotes that, goes on, uh, protects Christianity and all that. But at the same time, in Venezuela, they're starving uh, thousands of Christians. And and nobody really uh, talks about this. Uh, you know, for, for some reason, people all the time forget that a lot of Latin America... Well, this line, the, I'm sorry, Nestor, uh, this line is becoming uncontrollable, but uh, it was a very powerful point that you made uh, in any case uh, that uh, the so-called Christian countries are martyring Christians in Venezuela by starvation. They martyred them even more bloodily in Syria when the Western Christian countries supported the legions of Islamist fanatics who were cutting the heads of Christians. Lack of unity? Go figure. Let's take a break. With Illinois Congressman Joe Walsh's decision to challenge Trump for the GOP nomination, do you see him having an impact in the GOP primaries? And do you think former South Carolina governor and Congressman Mark Sanford will also run? Well, when most people hear the name Joe Walsh, they think of the James Gang rather than the Republican Party. Was he a pop singer also? He was the guitar player. Uh, he was, had a very successful solo career and then famously played part of the Hotel California guitar solo. Did he? So I think that more people have heard of that Joe Walsh than this one. Weirdly, this one's running <laughs> from the right wing of the Republican Party. But of course, it's a joke. The guy will get a book deal out of it. He'll get airtime. But I mean, if we're talking about can Trump beat the Democrats, of course, he's. It's it's not going to be a situation where even with Gerald Ford and George H. W. Bush, they survive this kind of challenge. With Trump, it's going to be easy peasy. And Derek Chad, that was from Patrick McCarthy, by uh, McCarthy, by the way. Uh, this is from Derek Chad. Uh, what is the origin of the expression redneck? As a teenager, I thought it was a simple-minded person from the U.S. Southern states. In the film Fahrenheit 11.9, I haven't seen that yet, actually, no. uh, they are described as members of the Miners' Union. Well, the term initiates from the post-Civil War, the American Civil War period, where the poorer white farmers, so not the landowners and the former slave owners, but the poor agriculturalists, were essentially plowing the field and they would wear straw hats and the shirts that would today be ineffectionately known uh, as the wife beater. And so they developed a particular tan on the back of their neck. That's how the expression originated. But now it's just sort of a der derogatory expression expression to usually refer to someone who's from the American South, who's white, who's poor, and tends to have views that are different than those of Hillary Clinton. It's, it's, these are the people that uh, Hillary called a basket of deplorables. And they all voted for her opponent. Who would have guessed? What I can tell you, uh, um, Derek, uh, if you watch my interview with the, the legendary Larry King, you'll see me describe the origin of the term hillbillies. Look it up. You'll be very, very surprised by it. And Andy... I love this interview, by the thank way. Thank you. Andy Omega says, should the EU be included 
in the Shanghai Cooperation Organization. What, 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 does, what has China done to deserve the presence of Jean-Claude Juncker and Ursula van der Leyen and Donald Tusk? I mean, even if one is on the side of the anti-Beijing people, I mean, certainly they've not done anything to deserve the European Union. So the short answer is no way. <laughs> Okay, there you go. Uh, that's a fairly uh, brusque rejection by the cleverest <laughs> man in England. Farkar is on the line. Where? Where? Tell me. Uh-oh. Yeah, go ahead. What's your name, sir? Clarkston. George, good evening to you. Good evening to Adam. Good evening, good evening sir. Hi. George, I have a question. In fact, see, it's about the G7 summit, which took place, means as recently as you can imagine. Yes. Boris... I've been seeing from the videos on social media the way Boris and Emmanuel Macron interacted, the way Boris and Donald Trump have been talking openly about a deal. Now, which brings me to a bit of a surprise, basically, because I'm a Labour voter, or I would say I have been a Labour voter so far. The thing which I don't understand is Brexit is like a bit of a black and white issue. Either we are going for Brexit or we are not. Mm -hmm. But then off late, suddenly we're hearing these things from your favourite, I would say sarcastically, of course, Tom Watson, many, many more, who suddenly want Jeremy Corbyn to, to literally overthrow the democratic mandate and form a coalition, some kind of a national unity, uh, I'm sorry, I'm not getting the exact word. No, national unity government, yeah. Yeah, yeah sorry, sorry, mate, exactly, thanks. They're throwing in these buzzwords, these magic words, these lingos here and there, now, assuming there's a snap election, assuming whether it happens a few days before 31st October, or just after 31st October when the Brexit happens, finally, if at all Jeremy Corbyn does, you know, decide to listen to his parliamentary colleagues and decides to form this NUG National Unity Coalition or decides to go for a second referendum, what will be the chances of a Jeremy Corbyn government and how will that affect Boris if he again decides, you know, to stand for prime minister again? Uh, well, I saw a lot of pigs fly past the window there. There's a lot of, uh, there's a lot of premises that don't uh, hold up uh, in that a series of questions uh, for which I'm nonetheless grateful. Uh, I think actually Boris Johnson's had a pretty good week. Uh, the uh, European Union said there was no chance of any renegotiation of Mrs May's withdrawal agreement and suddenly there is. But you need to hurry up, only 30 days. So we now know uh, that Tina, there is no alternative, is no more. Uh, and it's now up to the British government to come forward with a form of words. That's all we are really talking about, you know, because there's actually years of this to go, the negotiation of the final status uh, of uh, our country and the European Union. And then Macron, although he covered it up in a lot of uh, rather sour rhetoric, agreed with Chancellor Merkel uh, that, that you do have 30 days. Uh, to come up with uh, a new formulation. And I believe that the British will, because, as I've been saying for some considerable time, uh, the EU now knows that Britain is leaving the European Union. As a matter of fact, so do the anti-Brexit uh, fanatics. I've watched, felt, sensed the wind beginning to drop out of their sails. It's like watching a souffle collapse <laughs> as it has suddenly dawned on them that despite the oceanic use 
of uh, money, much of it foreign money, to subvert the decision we made to leave the EU, it's all failed. The great epic uh, counter-revolution has failed. We are going to be leaving, and moreover, we are going to be leaving on Halloween. So suddenly, everyone has to get their footing rearranged, uh, because politics after we've left will, of course, be entirely different no. to the politics before we left. Any party that makes as its banner for the next general election, which might be months or could be years distant, vote for us, we'll rejoin the European <laughs> Union, is a dead duck, a dead parrot, a dead party. You feel me? I perfectly. And then why Storm Watson occasionally? We have Tony Blair, sometimes we have Peter Mandelson, these folks suddenly coming up. And I don't care about yeah, but, Blair and Mandelson much, but, but about Storm Watson. Well, he's notionally the deputy leader of the party you support. Uh, but uh, I'm not going to go into him, uh, uh, if you don't mind, because I'm running out of time. I want to hear Adam's view uh, on what I've just said. Well, I agree. Opposing Brexit at this point is going to be political suicide for anyone that has the hope of becoming a party of government or even a realistic kingmaker. And I'll say this, Boris has had a good week, even though there is a fear that if the EU's desperate for an 11th hour agreement, which they have been in many cases in the past, that Boris, instead of really pushing them to the wall, might say, OK, let's water down this withdrawal treaty, because that's what it is, and it's one of the worst treaties of the modern age. Let's just water it down rather than totally amend it. That could be bad news for Boris. But what I have noticed is that while Boris has had a good week, and it's perfectly legitimate, it's accurate to admit that, he's becoming like Jeremy Corbyn, not in terms of policies, not in terms of habits, not in terms of comportment, but in the sense that now, a lot of the Boris supporters, the same people that were quite rightly willing to criticize the May bot, Theresa May, at every corner, there's now a Boris cult. And that's going to be dangerous because just as Jeremy Corbyn can and has done wrong, Boris Johnson can and surely will do wrong. People need to give him criticism, whether it's the traditional or the constructive nature, when he does something wrong. And by saying that the backstop is the only deplorable part of the basket of deplorables that is May's withdrawal treaty, it's just one bad apple in, in a rotten bunch. So people on the Brexit side have got to be cognizant of that. Uh, Jeremy Corbyn looks ridiculous in the eyes of many because people worship him on that side of the argument. And if people on the other side start to worship Boris in the same way, he'll also alienate a lot of people. Personality cults are bad news. And if people feel in politics that they're starting to be worshipped, rather than cultivate it like Tony Blair did, they should really put the brakes on it and show the human very, side. Very, interesting. Uh, thanks for that call. Let's go to Patty in Georgia. Hello, George. Hello, Adam. How are you? Wonderful to hear that accent coming all the way from Georgia. Thank you very much for the call. <laughs> well, I'm a new listener, but I'm really enjoying your show. Excellent. And uh, I really appreciate it. Thank you. And I appreciate taking my call. Um, my question is regarding Bernie Sanders. Yeah. Uh, I'm, a, I'm a supporter, and I believe that, of course, that he has the votes 
but if the DNC establishment continues doing what it's doing, um, Senator Sanders continues to say he'll he'll support whoever the Democratic nominee is, but I don't think we will. Well, um, I, yeah, I, I, th think I think you're right. I mean, I wouldn't. Uh, after they cheated right. him last time, uh, I don't have a vote, of course, right. but I, I supported Dr. Jill Stein, the Green Party uh, candidate. Uh, there's no way, if Bernie is not the candidate, that someone like me or, from what you say, someone like you can, I mean, could you possibly support Joe Biden? No, <laughs> absolutely not. And I don't think it matters whether whether it's uh, Democratic Socialist or Workers' Party or whatever we want to call it. But even if uh, Senator Sanders were to ask us to vote or support the Democratic nominee, I think we might have the first ever winner via write-in vote. <laughs> yeah, well, he, he, did, um, he did ask you to support uh, Hillary Clinton. And enough people, and en enough people declined to do so. Uh, that we've got Donald Trump right. in the White House. Right. So do they want <laughs> to do that again, Patty? Do they, really want, do they really want to do that again to so uh, undermine their own voting base uh, that they guarantee Honestly, another four years of Beelzebub, as they're always telling us he is? I honestly think they would. I, I think that they have the bubble that they live in that they cannot, will not, and have no desire to get outside of. And it doesn't seem to matter how much um, Nancy Pelosi gets protested or anybody. It just doesn't seem to matter. It never changes. The media, um, you know, the whole DNC establishment, the whole Washington establishment, it it's, has such a revolving door that they just won't listen. Well, because you know, the, no same thing, uh, the same thing could be said of the uh, Labour Party machine and uh, ancien regime here. Uh, they have never accepted Corbyn's leadership of the Labour Party. Indeed, they would rather have, and that's abundantly clear, they would rather have had the Conservatives win the last election than to have their own leader uh, win it. So the same forces... The same mentality is, to a great extent, uh, at work. Adam, last mm. words from you on this. Well, these days there are not many decent politicians who can think on their feet, speak on their feet, and make up their own mind without a focus group, straw pole, tin pole, and a cat on a hot tin roof. You obviously didn't need any of that. Your ideas were yours, and you didn't need anyone to exactly. tell you how to say them. These days, you have all these PR companies and focus groups, and I really think that the Democratic Party in America and the Labour Party in Britain must be getting the advice from the same people, because, because they're advising... Labour to betray Brexit, which is shooting themselves in one foot, then with the guns still warm, they're telling the Democrats, get Hillary in there, or get a Hillary clone, even if it's someone who's lost some of his marbles, like Biden apparently has, and that's just giving them the gun to shoot them in the other foot, two yeah. left feet, if, if one wants to get that much more metaphorical, but it's really just so silly. Identity politics only works in the parts of the US where the Democrats don't even need to win. In California and New York, a 
piece of brick with the word D on it would win. They need to win people in the swing states. That's where money talks, identity not so much. Last word to you, Patty. Well, I, I really am hoping that it does come out differently, that they do listen to the people for once. Um, I just don't see it happening. Okay, so. look, uh, don't be a stranger. Call us back. Uh, stay with us in the course uh, of uh, the next year or so as this election unfolds. Because we've got a legend on the line. No show is complete. It's Norma in Bristol. Hello, George. Hi. There's, there's not much time, so... Um, I'm just going to do two quick points. Yeah. I did read that Bernie Sanders said that the trillions of pounds that are spent on nuclear weapons are better spent on climate change. Now, that's a big subject. The other point that's slightly linked is CND, uh, who do very good work but are never given any publicity, <laughs> in London, they have a demonstration in December there's no to NATO, no to Trump, and they're calling, amongst other things, for the USA to withdraw the nuclear weapons from Germany, Belgium, and the Netherlands. And just very quickly, because I know you don't want me to speak much more, tell Adam, I mean, Adam, hello. Um, Hi, Norma. Hello. No to Trump is bad news if he gets back in for the world. Norma, thank you uh, for that. <coughs> Adam's giving you his... Uh, honest advice as to how he thinks things will go and that's a duty of uh, all of us. It's not because I want uh, Boris Johnson to win the next uh, British election that I tell you I think he probably will. Uh, it's, it's the precise opposite of what I want uh, but I'd be a liar and a fool uh, to tell you that I thought otherwise. This is important for people to grasp. My duty here, Adam's duty, is to tell you the truth as we see it. You can have your own truths. You can have your own opinions. But the reality is they tried it with Clinton and it failed. They put up the only person in America that could have lost to Donald Trump. And if they pick Joe Biden, they'll be doing exactly the same thing again. So to point that out is not to wish for a Trump victory, but merely to uh, predict it. Adam, it's been a great uh, show again in the middle of the summer, the height of the holiday season, and a bank holiday weekend here in Britain. And still the phone lines were full Excellent. all night, even if unexpectedly, on the issue of pan-Arabism. You're going to be with me in West Brom on the 13th, Friday the 13th, uh, unlucky for some, and you're going to be with me in Liverpool and Leicester and East Kilbride. It'll be your first trip to East Kilbride. I'm afraid uh, so. Warrant. Hopefully not my last, it's for, for been, a number of reasons. Uh, yeah, it's been marvellous for me. I hope it was for you. And if it was, come back next week at the same time, same place. Hi, this is Craig Robinson from Ways to Win. And support for this podcast comes from Invesco QQQ 
the official ETF of the NCAA. Invesco QQQ is proud to sponsor this episode and even prouder to provide access to innovation for the last 25 years. Basketball has had innovations over the years, too. We're seeing the game played in new ways every day. Learn more at Invesco.com QQQ. Let's rethink possibility. Invesco Distributors, Inc. 